recorded live. Thing, and this is Christogenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, June 7th, 2013. I'm not quite out of the woods with the, um, the plague, I'll call it that, the plague that struck me three weeks ago. I can see the border, though. I'm, I'm just about there. I'm just about back to my normal self. The um, I, I won't pontificate on why men get sick. Men get sick for a host of reasons. Sometimes it's chastisement. Sometimes it's um, because we're headed in a, in a wrong direction. Sometimes it's for no reason at all. In, in fact, the um, Apostle Paul in his letters describes one of his fellow workers who was sick unto death and, and, and never tries to imagine a, a precise reason why. That, that's just the way it is. We... we Praise Yahweh when we're sick, and we praise Yahweh when we're healed, and and we pray for our health. What can we? What what more can we ask for? That that hopefully, if it's His will, we can continue doing whatever our function is, which which He wants us to be doing. And if that's the reason why we've gone off the path, that's the reason why we get sick. We pray that He puts us back on it, and and that's all I can say. 
Tonight I will be presenting the book of Acts, chapter 4, after a two-week hiatus. The, the, um, the, the, the two-seed-line paper, the, the center reference, the, the presentation of the last two weeks, uh, I received some, some positive input from it, and many of my listeners can't wait to, um, to hear a full two-seed-line series. Um, Yahweh willing, I will be doing that. I will be commencing that soon. The Paul Basher series is about to wind down with the material that's currently prepared. We'll be finished, um, I'm guessing we'll be finished tomorrow night. Um, probably whether we finish it or not, we'll be finished with the Clayton Douglas material. Um, that series has been very popular. I can't really imagine why. I, I, I think a lot of the aspects of it are pretty arcane, but, but it has been popular. It has gotten a lot of downloads. And, um, well, praise Yahweh for that. What can I say? I would um, like to see these ACTS programs downloaded as frequently. And, and the AMOS programs have done well also. So we thank God for that. Currently, there, there, there were um, 84,000 downloads from Christagenia.org from, from my main website alone last month. And, and um, I can't be thankful enough for that. I... I um, that's beyond what, what I ever thought that um, we could do here at Christagenia. Tonight, we are going to begin this presentation of Acts chapter 4 by reading a passage from Flavius Josephus. We'll actually be reading several passages from him tonight. From Antiquities, book 14, where Josephus also quotes some passages from Strabo and accepts Strabo's remarks without probation, passages, of course, concerning Jerusalem and Judea. Strabo died about 12 years before Josephus was born, and Josephus was very much acquainted with his writings. We are doing this so that the scope of the political power held by the leaders of the temple in Judea may be properly understood, and so that the size of the diaspora of Judeans throughout the Greco-Roman world, which is not to be confused with the much earlier and much larger dispersions of Israel, may be more accurately perceived. By this we shall understand the daunting challenge which the apostles had in presenting the gospel, which was indeed controversial and which threatened the credibility of a long-established and very powerful political and religious institution in the temple at Jerusalem. And it had become, well, well it had departed from, from, from the way many centuries before the time of Christ, and it was little but a political and religious institution at this time one among many. From Antiquities, book 14, lines 110 through 118, 1472 in Whiston's numbering system. And let no one wonder that there was so much wealth in our temple since all the Judeans throughout the habitable earth and those that worshipped God, nay, even those of Asia and Europe, sent their contributions to it, and this from very ancient times. Nor is the largeness of these sums 
without its attestation, nor is it that greatness owing to our vanity. I'm sorry, nor is that greatness owing to our vanity, as raising it without ground to so great a height. But there are many witnesses to it, and particularly Strabo of Cappadocia, who says thus, and Josephus quotes, Mithridates sent to Cos and took the money which Queen Cleopatra had deposited there, as also 800 talents belonging to the Judeans. End of quote. Back to Josephus. Now we have no public money, but only what appertains to God. And it is evident that the Asian Judeans removed this money out of fear of Mithridates, for it is not probable that those of Judea, who had a strong city and temple, should send their money to Kos, nor is it likely that the Judeans who were inhabitants of Alexandria should do so neither, since they were in no fear of Mithridates. And, the, and Strabo himself bears witness to the same thing in another place, that at the same time that Sulla referring to the, um, the great Roman general of, of the early first century BC, that Sulla passed over into Greece in order to fight against Mithridates. He sent Lucullus to put an end to a sedition that our nation, of whom the habitable earth is full, had raised in Cyrene, or Kyrene, where he speaks thus, and Josephus quotes Strabo again, where he says, There were four classes of men among those of Kyrene, that of citizens, that of husbandmen, that of strangers, and the word there is ton metoikon. It's not a word meaning a racial alien, but just meaning somebody who is not a citizen of Cyrene, or Kyrene, Cyrene, and they may be Greeks dwelling there who aren't citizens. And the fourth of Judeans. Now these Judeans were already gotten into all cities, and it is hard to find a place in the habitable earth that is not admitted this tribe of men and is not possessed by them. And it has come to pass that Egypt and Cyrene, as having the same governors and a great number of other nations, imitate their way of living and maintain great bodies of these Judeans in a peculiar manner and grow up to great prosperity with them and make use of the same laws with that nation also. Accordingly, the Judeans have places assigned them in Egypt wherein they inhabit, besides what is peculiarly allotted to this nation at Alexandria, which is a large part of that city. It was a fourth, roughly. There is also an ethnarch Alabam. He was actually called an Albanarch in Alexandria, but it was equivalent to the office of ethnarch, who governs the nation and distributes justice to them and takes care of their contracts and of the laws belonging to them. As if he were the ruler of a free republic. In Egypt, therefore, this nation is powerful because the Judeans were originally Egyptians. Remember, this is Strabo's viewpoint, talking about the Exodus. And because the land wherein they inhabit, since they then went thence, is near to Egypt. They also removed into Cyrene, because that this land adjoined to the government of Egypt, as well as does Judea, or rather was formerly under the same government. And that's the end of Josephus' 
quotes his quote from Strabo where he says, and this is what Strabo says. Josephus quoting from Strabo to support his um, illustration that the Judeans were quite spread out and quite influential even before the time of Christ. I mean, Strabo died about 25 BC, exactly when he wrote his, his geography, which is what Josephus is quoting from. It is, um, I don't think it's known within his lifetime. I think he was born, if I had to guess, he was born sometime around 60 BC. I think he lived to be quite old. It is evident from history that some of these Judeans were of the Babylonian deportation of Judah, who never lost their identity as Judeans, even though they never returned to Jerusalem. Supporting that assertion is the statement by Peter at the end of his first epistle, which indicates that it was written from Babylon. I know a lot of people think, oh, Peter was making a code word for Rome, but that's just not the case. And those same people are usually Catholic defenders who would deny that, therefore, Mystery Babylon describes Rome. So, so they would deny it there and, and, and admit it in, in 1 Peter. It's simply not true. Babylon was not a code word meaning Rome in the first century. Others of these Judeans may have been of the even earlier Assyrian deportations. And there is some historical and archaeological evidence that some of those seem to have maintained their identity and never left Mesopotamia. From a Greek perspective, they would have been called Judeans because of their religion and personal customs. The book of Tobit is a scriptural example of such a circumstance although that book must date from the first century of the Assyrian captivity from before the fall of Nineveh. But it does illustrate some of the dispersion of Israel who did not leave Mesopotamia and who maintained their identity in the Assyrian captivity. And there is archaeological evidence to that effect also. Not all of them went off across the Caucasus and across Anatolia to become known later as Scythians and Sake and Chimerians. A lot of them were still known as Scythians and Sake and Chimerians and remained in Mesopotamia. And that can be shown in the histories. I'll be discussing that when I present my German origin series, hopefully this year, here on Topshoe, on Christogenia, I should say. What is more difficult to determine is how many of these so-called Judeans who were spread throughout the Greco-Roman world at this time were good figs and how many were bad figs, of which there were a large population of brought to Babylon. And how many were Edomites, which were not made into Judeans until circa 125 B.C.? The Edomites aren't the bad figs of Jeremiah. The bad figs of Jeremiah are Judeans who would already mix themselves with, with Canaanites. It was the will of God that the message of the gospel be that device which was to divide the wheat from the tares. We can never tell how many of Josephus's Judeans spread across the Roman Empire were wheat and how many were tares, but we can imagine there was a considerable number of both. 
It was the gospel that was meant to be the device, which was to divide them. And there were also Canaanites amongst the pagans. There were Canaanites among the Greeks, as well as the other Adamic and Israelite nations. Isaiah chapter 55 establishes my contention that it was the gospel which was to distinguish the wheat from the tares. From verse 10, and, and this, this Isaiah, I, I almost, preparing this program, I almost wanted to read Isaiah all the way from chapter 50, because all of this is basically discussing the same topic. It's all a messianic prophecy explaining that God's sheep would hear his voice, if I had to summarize it in brief. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and returns not thither, but waters the earth, and makes it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. For you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to Yahweh for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off, and to understand that it's the gospel that's being spoken of, you would have to read from perhaps at least Isaiah 53. That's the context of these chapters of Isaiah. In Acts chapter 3, we see a man known to have been crippled from birth and who begged outside of the temple gate each day, who was miraculously healed through the apostles. A great crowd of witnesses, marveling at the miracle, were then addressed at length by Peter. In his discourse, Peter explains to them that this miracle had only been possible by the name of Joshua Christ. And he then blames the entire Judean nation for the unjust execution of Christ, explaining that it was then necessary for the people to repent and to accept Christ as that prophet and Messiah promised by the scriptures. Peter then warns them that this is the only way that they could have salvation and a share in the promises made to Abraham and in the inheritance of Israel. Peter ends his discourse by hearkening to certain prophecies made concerning Judah, where he says, in verse 26, To you first, Yahweh, raising his servant, sent him blessing you by which to turn each back from your wickedness. An allusion to a prophecy which says that the tents of Judah would be saved first in Zechariah chapter 12. I will discuss that at length when, um, when we get to the ministry of Paul and the command that he go to the Macedonians before he preach in Asia another command which is quite often misunderstood. It must be said, parenthetically, 
that one does not somehow earn salvation by believing Christ. That's not what the gospel is saying. Rather, the scriptures teach that his sheep hear his voice, that those who accepted the gospel, they were indeed his people, and that those who rejected it were themselves to be rejected. Again, the acceptance of the gospel in the first century was the indicator which distinguished the wheat from the tares. Today, today we're in a different predicament. At this point, Acts chapter 3 ends, but the ongoing account of the same event is continued in Acts chapter 4. And we will commence with that presently. And upon their speaking to the people, the priests and the officer of the temple and the Sadducees fell upon them, being quite troubled on account of their teaching the people and declaring that at the hands of Yahshua is resurrection from the dead. The codices Vaticanus and Ephraimisiri have high priests rather than priests. And the phrase at the hands of Yahshua is literally in that which is of Yahshua. The King James Version merely has it through Jesus, which is fine. Liddell and Scott explain it, that word an, which is literally in, that the word is used to describe something which is in, within one's hands or within one's reach or power. So there are times when I translate it more emphatically. Verse 3, And they laid hands on them and put them in custody for the next day, since it was already evening. But many of those hearing the word had believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. That word custody, teresis, Strong's number 5084 is really a, a watching or a keeping or a guarding. And it refers also to a place of keeping, a place of custody. It indicates that the apostles were jailed at this point in the temple jail. The temple had its own jail. We'll see its use again in um, Acts chapter 9, I believe, with Paul, with the introduction of Paul of Tarsus. It is readily evident from Acts chapter 5, verse 17, that the high priests at this time were actually of the sect of the Sadducees. It is also recorded in Josephus that this is the case. Here, the Sadducees instigated this persecution, becoming very agitated concerning the evidence of a spirit and the possibility of resurrection or life after death of the body, since the Sadducees rejected any transcendental beliefs. The Sadducees basically gave a belief in God lip service, we will see from Josephus. They were basically God deniers. In Acts chapter 23, verse 8, we're told, for indeed the Sadducees say that there is not to be a resurrection nor are there messengers, meaning angels, nor a spirit. But the Pharisees confess both things. In Acts chapter 23, we see that Paul, when he was accosted and arrested by them, took advantage of these differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees 
in order to cause strife between them to his own advantage. Throughout the Gospels, Christ never communed with the Sadducees. There's a good reason for that. He never even mentioned or addressed them. It's not recorded. He only addressed them. He only paid any attention to them when they accosted him. Their trick question concerning the man with, the, the woman with seven, married to a man with six brothers, right? And she was married to each one of them because each one of them died. That's the only time Christ had any real discourse with the Sadducees. That's the only record of it in Scripture. Yet, Christ often communed with the Pharisees, and he sought to persuade them. This is clear evidence that at least many of the Pharisees were considered redeemable by Christ. He was eating their homes. He was healing their children and their servants. But Christ never had any such intentions toward the Sadducees. There is not one noble Sadducee mentioned in Scripture. Not one, to my recollection. Josephus also tells us these things concerning the Sadducees, where, along with the Pharisees and Essenes, he describes them in Book 2 of his Wars of the Judeans. And in that passage of the Sadducees, he says at line 164, but the Sadducees are those who compose the second order after the Pharisees and take away fate entirely and suppose that God is not concerned in our doing or not doing what is evil. And they say that to act what is good or what is evil is it men's own choice, and that the one or the other belongs so to everyone that they may act as they please. They also take away the belief of the immortal duration of the soul and the punishments and rewards in Hades. Of course, Christians don't really believe in that because Christians understand that Christ smashed the gates of Hades, and reunited Israel with Yahweh, right? This is a pre-Christian belief which the Pharisees maintained and the Catholic Church adopted later on. Moreover, the Pharisees are friendly to one another and are for the exercise of concord and regard for the public. But the behavior of the Sadducees, one toward another, is in some degree wild. And their conduct with those who are of their own party is as barbarous as if they were strangers to them. And this is what I had to say concerning the philosophic sects among the Judeans. The Sadducees are the real antecedents of most of today's Jews. The Sadducees are basically God deniers because they deny the hand of God in world events. They deny the hand of God in history. They didn't disclaim God's existence, but basically they disclaimed any role he has amongst men. 
the Pharisees, the real antecedents of today's Jews who hold to humanism, agnosticism, atheism, relativism, it didn't matter to the Pharisees. It was each man's choice whether he did what was good or what was evil. Jewish relativism, the Pharisees are the ancestors of it. Of that and of any other excuse permitting their immorality, the Jews are the successors of the Pharisees in great degree. And they promote all of those isms, especially relativism and humanism. Here it may be fitting to read another long passage from Josephus, from Antiquities, Book 20, which shall give us even more insight into the nature of the Sadducees, who were actually the sect of the high priests for most of the time throughout well, throughout the ministry of Christ, and also throughout the entire apostolic era until the fall of Jerusalem. The period which Josephus is describing in this passage I'm about to present is around 62 AD, but the words of Josephus have here are reflecting all the way back to the time of the first Christian Pentecost described in Acts, which is around 32 AD. And I quote Josephus, Book 20, Chapter 9, Sections 1 and 2 in Whiston's numbering system. Book 20 from, one, from line 197 in the Loeb Library numbering system. And now Caesar, upon hearing the death of Festus, sent Albinus into Judea as procurator. But the king deprived Joseph of the high priesthood and bestowed the succession to that dignity on the son of Ananus, who was also himself called Ananus. Now the report goes on that this oldest Ananus proved the most fortunate man, for he had five sons who had all performed the office of a high priest to God, and who had himself enjoyed that dignity a long time formerly which had never happened to any of our high priests. And we shall see that this oldest Ananus is the Annas of the Gospel. Hannas in the Christogenian New Testament. And the difference being the difference between the Greek and the Hebrew forms of the name when they're transliterated into English. And he is called high priest, although his son-in-law at the time of Christ, his son-in-law Caiaphas actually held the office. Back to Josephus. But this younger Ananus, who, as we have already told you, took the high priesthood, was a bold man in his temper and very insolent. He was also of the sect of the Sadducees, Well, all of the members of this family were of the sect of the Sadducees, who were very rigid in judging offenders above all the rest of the Judeans, as we have already observed. When, therefore, Ananus was of this disposition, he thought he now had a proper opportunity to exercise his authority. Festus was now dead, and Albinus was but upon the road. 
and they are the former and the coming Roman governors. We know Festus from the Gospel. He had Paul under arrest and sent him to Rome. Albinus was his successor. Paul is already in Rome at this time. So he assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who is called Christ, whose name was James, and some others, or some of his companions. And when he had formed an accusation against them, as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. So we see that Ananus had opportunity to do this at this time because there was no Roman authority to answer to in Judea who could immediately question him. Festus was the governor and he died. Albinus was on the road en route to Judea to take his office. Ananus used that interim time as an opportunity to kill the Apostle James, the brother of Christ. Which is another, um, another. this is actually the third, it's the third because of the, the testimony of John the Baptist, and there's one testimony of Christ in Antiquities Book 18. This is actually another testimony of Christ in, in um, Josephus, where he's, he, he's telling us about the death of James. Back to Josephus. But as for those who seem the most equitable of the citizens, and such as were the most uneasy at the breach of the laws, they disliked what was done. They also sent to the king Agrippa, desiring him to send to Ananus, that he should act so no more. For what he had already done was not to be justified. Nay, some of them went also to meet Albinus, the coming Roman governor, as he was upon his journey from Alexandria, and informed him that it was not lawful for Ananus to assemble a Sanhedrin without his consent. Whereupon Albinus complied with what they said and wrote in anger to Ananus and threatened that he would bring him to punishment for what he had done, on which King Agrippa took the high priesthood from him. Agrippa is already punishing him. I see Agrippa. What Agrippa is doing here is really a device to prevent Albinus, the Roman governor, from punishing him. I think Agrippa is interceding to punish him so that Albinus can't punish him again and take his life. That's my, that's my opinion, Agrippa being an Edomite himself. On which King Agrippa took the high priesthood from him when he had ruled but three months and made Jesus the son of Damnius the high priest. And now we see that there were limits as to what the Sadducees could get away with when good people stood up and complained of injustice to the higher Roman authorities. The modern-day Sadducees, they act much the same way. Bolshevik Russia is an example of what evils they can do when there are no such authorities to be reckoned with. However, in a more immediate sense, this is pertinent to the events which transpire, which are described in Acts chapter 4. Because the Sadducees really wanted to punish Peter and John 
when they arrested them, but they couldn't get away with it without being, without facing the music, so to speak. I'm going to read the next paragraph of Josephus. It's still important to what we have to say here tonight. Paragraph, the paragraph that starts at line 204 of this 20th book of Antiquities. Now, as soon as Albinus had come to the city of Jerusalem, he used all his endeavors and care that the country might be kept in peace. And this by killing many of the Sicarii, they were robbers. But as for the high priest, Ananias, or Ananus, the former high priest from the time of Christ, who still had great influence many years later, he increased in glory every day speaking about Albinus's treatment of Ananus or Ananias. And this to a great degree, and had obtained the favor and esteem of the citizens in a signal manner, for he was a great hoarder-upper of money, and he therefore cultivated the friendship of Albinus, he was bribing him, and of the high priest Jesus, the one who replaced his son, right? By making them presents. He also had servants who were very wicked, who joined themselves to the boldest sort of the people and went to the threshing floors and took away the tithes that belonged to the priest by violence and did not refrain from beating such as would not give these tithes to them. So the other high priests, acted in a like manner, as did his servants, without anyone being able to prohibit them, so that some of the priests who were supported in olden days by those tithes died for lack of food. Now, the difference here is that the Sadducees are a political party. They're not really priests. The priests Josephus is talking about are the real Levites. So we see that the Sadducees, the crime lords of ancient Judea, that's what they were, were persecuting the Levitical priests, who were the only true legitimate priests of the day. We also see that the Sadducees were the high priests responsible for the death of Christ. Remember, from the days of Herod, high priest is not a Levite anymore. High priest is a political position appointed by first by Herod and after his death and after the death of his son, after the banishment of his son, Herod Archelaus, by Rome. Rome appointed the high priests. And later on by Herod Agrippa, later in, in, in the history of Jerusalem, as we see transpired here. We see that the Sadducees, the crime lords of ancient Judea, were persecuting the Levitical priests. And Josephus, this is one of several times that he tells us this in, in Antiquities, in the later books, who were the only true, truly legitimate priests of the day. We also see that the Sadducees were the high priests responsible for the death of Christ. They were the high priests responsible for the death of the Apostle James, and they were the high priest responsible for the arrest of Paul. Their nature 
is also left unrevealed in the teachings of the modern churches. And even most so-called Christian identity teachers insufficiently understand the nature of this source of great evil from the time of Christ. They tend to blame all of the evil on the Pharisees. They oversimplify the circumstances in first century Judea. And they ignore, or or more likely are ignorant of, the role and the nature of the Sadducees. What they believe is the reason why they act like they do. Because they don't believe they'll be called into account for their sins. Josephus also indicates in book, Antiquities Book 13 that the sect of the Sadducees, as well as those of the Pharisees and the Essenes, was already extant in Judea as early as the days of the first of the Maccabees or before 150 B.C. So the Sadducees, they were, they were a party called Sadducees in Judea before the Edomites were officially absorbed into the nation. The dimension of the name Ananias, which is just another form of Annas or Ananas, or also Hannas, H-A-N-N-A-S in the Christogenian New Testament, and that's because of the Greek in the New Testament. At the mention of the name Ananias in the passage of Josephus, which we have just supplied, we have the following footnote from Whiston's edition. And the footnote is accurate. This Ananias was not the son of Nebadeus, as I take it. Now, now let me say that Nebadeus, as we learned from Josephus and from Whiston elsewhere, was the high priest at the time when Paul pled his case in, in the Gospel of in, in, in the Acts of the Apostles, that was about circa 58 or 59 A.D. Right? I think it's in Acts chapters 27, 28 in there. But he who was this Ananias was he who was called Annas or Ananas the Elder in the ninth catalog and who had been esteemed high priest for a long time. And besides, Caiaphas, his son-in-law, had five of his own sons, high priests, after him, who were those of Numbers in, in Josephus's catalog of high priests, right? Numbers 11, 14, 15, 17, and 24 in the foregoing catalog in Josephus's history of high priests in antiquities, which is what Whiston is referring to as the catalog, right? Nor we, ought we to pass slightly over what Josephus here says of Annas, or Ananias, that he was high priest a long time before his children were so, that he was the son of Seth and is set down first for high priest in the foregoing catalog under number nine, he was made by Quirinius and continued until Ismael, the tenth in number, for about 23 years, which long duration of his high priesthood joined into successions of his son-in-law and five children of his own made him a sort of perpetual high priest and was perhaps the occasion that former high priests kept their titles ever afterwards. For I believe, meaning Whiston, I believe it is hardly met with before him. Now, first, I would remark that the original and authentic 
a Levitical office of high priest was a lifetime appointment. There was no such thing as a former high priest, right? That office ended with the treachery of Herod and, the, and, and when Herod killed the last of the Maccabees. Herod made it a political appointment and, and, and appointed and disappointed high priest as he, as he felt the need to. Here we see that it is evident in the pages of Josephus that the high priest Annas, whom we know from the Gospels, had himself already held the office for 23 years from the governorship of that Quirinius, which began about 6 AD. From Josephus, as well as from John 18, verse 13, we learn that Caiaphas was his son-in-law. And we see that five sons from each of these men had all held the office of high priest in the years subsequent. They were all Sadducees, and they were all related. These 12 men were not the only high priests of the period, since as we have seen here, there were also other men who held the office. However, these Sadducees were highly influential throughout the entire period. And they held the office for much of this time. From 6 AD all the way to the destruction of Jerusalem, a period of 64 years. Of these 64 years, Annas and Caiaphas alone held the post for nearly half of the time. And the ten sons which they had between them, who all held the post, held it for much of the other half. It is little wonder that this is such an evil time in Judea. Acts chapter 4, verse 5. And there was on the next day a gathering of them, the leaders and the elders and the scribes in Jerusalem, and Hannes, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and Johannes, and Alexandros, or John and Alexander. Some suppose this Alexander to be that Alexander the Alabarch, and the title of the leader, the title being that of the leader of the Judeans dwelling in Alexandria, who is mentioned by Josephus in Antiquities 18 book 18 and elsewhere, who was later imprisoned by Gaius Caligula, but released by Claudius. It's not that important. It's just a side note. And Hannes the high priest and Caiaphas, his son-in-law, right? And John and Alexander, and as many as were of the race of the high priest, and standing them, meaning the apostles who they arrested the day before, Standing them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name have you done this? Referring to the healing of the lame man. The race of the high priest. The Greek word rendered race here is genos, which is usually translated as generation in the King James Version. It can be demonstrated from the early Greek literature and from the lexicons that in the Greek mind, a race was often understood to be a subdivision of a nation. 
Often the word genos was used to refer to the descendants of a single man. Although, of course, that man himself was related to others as well. It can be evidenced in our general history, however, that there are sound reasons why today we more readily esteem a nation to be a subdivision of a race instead of the other way around. Once we understand that certain races have grown and branched out into several or even into many separate nations, we can understand the word differently as we do today. And as the later Greeks also sometimes understood it from their own history, and they did. So the word always has to be taken in its historical context. Like every other word, right? The typical King James Version assignment of the meaning of generation for genos here, as many as were of the generation of the high priest, would be absurd since the apostles and everybody in Judea would, be, would of course be part of that same generation. And therefore, here it is rendered as kindred in the King James Version. To translate it kindred here, as the King James Version does, is to realize that it may be translated as kindred elsewhere. However, neither is that rendering very accurate as we today generally think of a kindred which relates to only one's closer family members where race usually designates the much wider group. Everybody related to one. The Apostle Paul considered all true Israelites to be his kinsmen according to the flesh. And there he uses the word sugenes. Sugenes is more appropriately kinsmen or kindred. In Romans chapter 9, Sugenes is derived from genos, and it's more appropriately rendered as kinsmen or kindred, close, those close, closest to you in race, those together with you in race. However, in Romans chapter 4, Paul displays his understanding that those Israelites had also already become many nations. He displays this knowledge again in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where he said, Behold, Israel, down through the flesh, are not those who are eating the sacrifices partners of the altar. In that passage, Paul was referring to certain pagan nations in Europe whom he knew to have descended from the ancient dispersions of Israel. He was not referring to any so-called Jews. He was talking about the pagan sacrifices made by the Greek and neighboring tribes. Where he tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that their fathers were also in the exodus with Moses. He considered all true Israelites to be his kinsmen according to the flesh. So all Israelites must be of the same genos. Yet the word genos generally has a wider application than sugenes, which Paul uses in Romans 9. 
Yet here in Acts chapter 4, the apostles distinguish themselves from the high priests by the word genos. In his later epistle, Peter considered all Israel to be a chosen genos, to be a chosen race, 1 Peter 2.9. Therefore, these high priests must be of a different genos than that of Israel. Here it is distinctly clear that the apostles saw the high priests as being of a different race than they themselves were. And therefore, it is highly unlikely that they considered them to be Israelites considering their other statements regarding Genos and Israel, regarding race and Israel. By the phrase, as many as were of the race of the high priest, the writer, meaning the unknown writer from whom Luke received this record of, his, of, of this account, must have also meant to distinguish these people apart from the other leaders and the elders and the scribes in Jerusalem. It's a very clear distinguishment. Who had gathered for this hearing at this time. And by the phrase, as many as were of the race of the high priest, the writer also did not intend merely his nieces, nephews, cousins, and other close relatives, or subgenes may have been the appropriate word to use in the description. Rather, it is much more likely that a writer intended to identify those on the side of the high priest in this manner as being more loosely related to one another, as being a genos, and as being Edomites. For if they were not of Israel, of what other race could they have been? The people that Christ never communed with. the people that sought Christ out to question him, but he never addressed them. He answered their questions, but he never sought them out. Verse 8. Then Petros, or Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, leaders of the people and elders, now, the Codex Beze and the majority text have elders of Israel here. So, therefore, the King James Version has elders of Israel here. But the text of the Christogenian New Testament follows the Codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, and the 5th century Codex known as 0165. Added words can cause many a misunderstanding, and the majority text is replete with them. Verse 9, if we this day are examined for the benefit of the sick man, by what manner he was delivered, and that word may have been rendered saved, saved from his affliction, the King James Version has it made whole there, it must be known by all of you and by all of the people of Israel that in the name of Yahshua Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom Yahweh raised from among the dead, by him he stands before you healthy. Peter again blames the entire Judean nation for the act of crucifying Christ, as he is consistently portrayed as having done throughout his discourses and acts. Verse 11. He is the stone 
who is set at naught by your builders, who has become the head cornerstone. And there is no deliverance in any other, for there is not another name under the heaven which has been given among men by which it is necessary for us to be preserved. The Greek word rendered cornerstone is gonia, and it's literally only the head angle. That's what it means. The chief angle. And therefore, the King James Version has it as the head of the corner. That's more literal in this, in this instance than the, than the Christogenian New Testament, the head of the corner. The verse quotes from Psalm 120, 118, verse 22. I won't repeat it here. The Codex Vaticanus, that psalm, that psalm and that verse are always, are very often referenced four times, I think. It's in all four Gospels, that that head cornerstone is said to be a prophecy concerning Christ. The Codex Vaticanus has for you to be preserved. The Greek word sozo, meaning preserved in the appropriate tense, may also have been rendered saved or delivered. The Edomite Jews are not the builders. The scribes and the Pharisees are not the builders. Peter here makes it clear. By your builders meaning they themselves were not the builders. The stone, being a head cornerstone, from a Greek word which literally means a head angle, its being rejected can therefore be a, a metaphorical comparison to the fact that the Great Pyramid in Giza, a land that the children of Israel once tread, never had a capstone. And it is also representative of the rock in the desert, which was Christ. And those who came out of Egypt in the Exodus rejected him. And those who were permitted to enter into that first promised land of Canaan rejected him again. They are the builders because they are the foundations of that which the Judean nation was eventually derived from. And they rejected Yahweh God as their king that this would happen is prophesied in Deuteronomy 17, 14. And the story of the actual rejection is told in 1 Samuel chapter 8. They wanted an earthly king. By accepting Christ as king, Israel finally repents for those initial rejections. Verse 13. And observing the frankness of Peter and John, and perceiving that they are unlearned and unskilled men, wondering, they then recognized them, that they were with Yahshua. Remember, this is only immediately following the event which became the apostles concerning the deposit of the Holy Spirit received on the day of Pentecost. We're only a, a couple of days after that event here in Acts chapter 4. And that's only 50 days after the Passover when Christ was crucified. So these men could very easily remember that Peter and John were amongst the apostles who followed Christ 
The Greek word, parasia, frankness here, is free spokenness, openness, frankness. And in a bad sense, it is license of tongue. For this reason, the King James Version has boldness. However, that meaning is implied only by the circumstances. Peter and John were simple tradesmen, fishermen, when Christ chose them as apostles. When they spoke, it was obvious that they were not skilled in the intellectual arts of the time. They had no guile. They had no agendas. They professed their testimony honestly and without the artificial rhetorical devices used by educated men. However, their frankness was an asset to the spread of the gospel and is certainly why such men were chosen for that purpose because having no agendas, they would be believed. The Judeans had wondered how Christ had the ability to speak which he had, which he had displayed, since he did not attend their schools. At John 7.15, it is recorded, Then the Judeans wondered, saying, How does he know literature, not being instructed? Neither did the eleven apostles have any such instruction, but they were plain-spoken men. Freedom of speech, the Greek word parasia, is a Christian principle, but Christians should also understand that we can only have true freedom of speech in Christ. Therefore, the enemies of Christ should never have had freedom of speech in our Christian nations. And that is why those nations are presently subverted by those same enemies of Christ. It is incredible, to me anyway, that we as a people had the total lack of foresight to allow the Antichrist such freedom within Christian nations. However, that too is in fulfillment of prophecy. Ephesians 3 from verse 10. In order that the exceedingly intricate wisdom of Yahweh would now become known to the realms and to the authorities in heavenly places through the assembly, through the church, in accordance with the purpose of the ages, through the ecclesia, I should say, which he has done in Yahshua Christ, our Prince, with whom we have free spokenness and access in confidence through his faith. The assembly, the church, the ecclesia should all refer to the people of Israel gathered in any particular place. 1 John 2, 28. And now, children, you abide in him, that if he should appear, we would have free spokenness and would not be dishonored by him at his presence. If you know that he is righteous, you also know that each who is practicing righteousness has been born from of him. Christians should only seek freedom of speech in Christ. Therefore, all Jews should be excluded, and no Jew should be given freedom of speech in a Christian nation. From Isaiah chapter 29, from verse 19, the meek also shall increase their joy in, in Yahweh, and the poor among men 
shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. For the terrible one is brought to naught, and the scorner is consumed, and all that watch for iniquity are cut off, that make a man an offender for a word, and lay a snare for he that reproves in the gate. Righteous men that saw misdeeds and testified to them were he who reproves in the gate. And turn aside the just for a thing of naught. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, neither shall his face wax pale. But when he sees his children, the work of mine hands, in the midst of him, they shall sanctify my name, and sanctify the Holy One of Jacob, and shall fear the God of Israel. They also that erred in spirit, meaning the, meaning the Israelites who erred in spirit, shall come to understanding, and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. But the terrible one, the scorner, and all that watch for iniquity, that make a man an offender for a word, and lay a snare for he that reproves in the gate, for he that complains against injustices and misdoings, they're brought to naught. They're consumed. They go to the lake of fire, right? Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 29, the nature of the enemies of God in relation to the free spokenness which we should have in Christ is revealed. It is the enemies of God and of righteousness that make themselves the enemies of free speech. And our history, both ancient and modern, proves as much time and time again. The devil does not like to be chastised for his sins. Acts 4.14 And looking at the man who was healed, standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. Then bidding them to go outside of the council, they conferred with each other, saying, What shall we do with these men? For indeed it is known that a visible sign has come through them by all those dwelling in Jerusalem. And we are not able to deny it. Now the later half of verse 16 may just as well be read, for indeed that it is known that a sign has come through, all, through them by all those dwelling in Jerusalem is manifest, and we are not able to deny it. But either way, it's really not that important. The enemies of God hated Christ for the miraculous things which he had done, and now those who followed him have multiplied his miracles, knowledge of which cannot be contained among the people. Along with the gift of speaking in tongues, which they received on Pentecost, the ability to do something such as this healing was also a gift chosen by God which facilitated the spread of the gospel to Israel. After the apostolic age, when Israel had received, for the most part, received the gospel, the gift of healing 
was no longer really required. Verse 17. But in order that it not be spread to a greater extent to the people, we should threaten them not any longer to speak in his in this name to any of the men. And calling them, they instructed them generally not to utter nor to teach by the name of Yahshua. The majority text has, we should threaten them with threats, where the King James Version renders the Greek, let us straightly threaten them. That's a little weird, but it's fine. The text of the Christogenian New Testament follows the Codices, Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, and Bezae in, in this instance. The verb paragello, which in the Christogenian New Testament is instructed, may have been rendered commanded. Either way would be correct. The Codex Bezae reads verse 18, and upon their assenting to an opinion, calling them, they instructed them each not to utter nor to teach by the name Yahshua. This command issued by the Sadducees reveals the satanic proclivity to control the minds of men. If they could have gotten away with it, they surely would have ordered the apostles stoned instead in order to silence them permanently. This seems to be the first officially anti-Christian hate speech law brought to us by the Antichrist Jews, just as such laws are brought to us today. These Sadducees are the ancient versions of Abe Foxman, Eric Holder, Rahm Emanuel, David Axelrod, Chuck Schumer, Diane Feinstein, Harry Reid, and all of the other godless bastards who attempt to do these same things today. There's no doubt. The Sadducees, in those cases, are both their antecedents and are probably among their ancestors. The tree is known by its fruit. Verse 19. But Peter and John, replying, said to them, Whether it is just or righteous before Yahweh to listen to you, or rather to Yahweh, you decide. For we are not able to, we are not, able to not speak of the things which we have seen and we have heard. They had to spread the gospel. They couldn't contain themselves. And this, too, should serve as an example to us today, regardless of the outcome, whether or not we are persecuted for it, to always speak the truth regarding that which we are confronted with. Philippians, verse 1. I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 27. Only conduct yourselves worthily of the good message of the anointed, or the gospel of Christ, right? in order that whether coming and seeing you or being away, I hear of the things concerning you, that you stand in one spirit and one soul, together striving in the faith of the good message, and in nothing being frightened by the opposition, which to them is an indication of destruction. When we're not afraid of the enemies of God, they understand that their fate is wanting but of your preservation, because we are sure of our fate. 
and this from Yahweh. Because to you it has been offered concerning Christ, not only to believe in him, but also in behalf of him to suffer, having that same struggle like you have seen with me, and now you hear of with me. Paul was in bonds, right? 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. And yet all those wishing a pious life in Christ Yahshua will be persecuted. And evil men and enchanters will advance for the worse, deceiving and being deceived themselves. The people who are successful in this life, there you have it. That they're usually that they're usually successful because they've been wicked. Not always, but usually. There are exceptions. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. But if then you should suffer on account of righteousness, you are blessed. So you should not fear their fear, nor be troubled. 1 Peter 4, from verse 15. For not any among you must suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler in the matters of others. But if, as a Christian, you must not be ashamed... But you must honor Yahweh by this name, because the time of judgment is to begin for the house of Yahweh. But if first for us, what is the end of those who were disobedient to the gospel of Yahweh? There is no doubt that by adhering to and professing the gospel of Christ and the laws of our God, Christians shall suffer in this life, but will be rewarded in that which is to come. As Christians reject the world, the world rejects Christians. Therefore, by attempting to live a pious life and separate oneself from all of the unclean beasts and every sort of deviant sinner, Christians can expect to be persecuted. Life in first century Rome, as we see in Paul's description in Romans chapter 1, was every bit as perverted and decadent as the world is today. The apostles were not persecuted for preaching peace, love, and joy. Therefore, the Roman historian Tacitus spoke of the antisocial tendencies of Christians in his Annals of Imperial Rome in Book 15, which all Christians should have so long as society is controlled by the eternal enemies of God and Christ. Tacitus made these statements in spite of the fact that he himself was displeased with the decadence of Rome, which is a recurring theme in his Germania. And wherever the Jews are found, wherever the Jews are found, the inevitable result is the recreation of Sodom and Gomorrah. The tree is known by its fruit. When a Baptist tells you that Jews are God's chosen people, you should ask, why do Jews always vote for immorality? They're not God's chosen people. It's that simple. The tree is known by its fruit. Verse 21. Then further threatening them, they released them, not finding how they could restrict them on account of the people, because they all extolled Yahweh for that which happened. For the man was older, or literally greater, than forty years, upon whom the sign of this healing had come, 
It took the wicked leaders of the Judeans quite some time in conspiracy to build the case against Christ, and quite some effort in pressuring Pontius Pilate to let them have their way with it. With all of the witnesses here, they could not easily dispose of the apostles without serious political repercussions from Rome, which is one thing which we attempted to elucidate in the pages of Josephus. While the high priest had much power and authority and many benefits from the office and the wealth of the temple and was able to get away with a lot, including the persecution of the Levites, they nevertheless frequently had to answer to the Roman officials under pressure from the people. We are already informed in verse 3 of this chapter that there are 5,000 witnesses who came to believe the gospel through this event. The office of the high priest changed hands often at the political whims of the Romans or whoever they put in control of it. For quite some time during the later parts of this period covered by the book of Acts, Rome left it to Herod Agrippa to appoint or change high priests as he deemed fit. Although Herod was an Edomite, as frequently attested by Josephus, his first considerations were political, and he acted in his own interests, since he too held his office at luxury to Romans. Instances of such changes in the office of high priest and threats of punishment from Rome if the high priests abused their position have already been described in the citations from Josephus, which we have provided earlier in this presentation this evening. So with all of these witnesses, the Sadducees here could not unjustly punish the apostles as they saw fit without risking some reprisal from Rome. So they had to let them go. Verse 23. And being released, they went to their own countrymen and reported as much as the high priests and the elders said to them. The Greek phrase, tus idius, the accusative plural case, is here their own countrymen. Thayer has in his lexicon as idios, speaking of the nominative case of the same words, it's the same words, hoi idioi, one's own people, one's fellow countrymen, associates, one's household, persons belonging to the house, family, or company. And the ninth edition of the Liddell and Scott Greek-English lexicon agrees, having it the same phrase under idios, a member of one's family, members of one's family or relatives. Here it is certainly evident that this phrase is set in opposition to the phrase found earlier in verse 6 of this chapter, where it says, and as many as were of the race of the high priest. This phrase is set in opposition, and they being released went to their own countrymen after they were persecuted by as many as were of the race of the high priest. 
knowing from both Josephus and Paul, for instance in Romans chapter 9, that many of the leaders and the high priests of the time were Edomites, but the followers of Christ were surely Israelites. Here, once again, we see these people distinguished. The, pe the people of the apostles were a people distinct from those of the high priest and the Sadducees, in a way which was not merely theological or philosophical. The modern translations obfuscate the distinctions which were made in the original writing because they don't properly translate the words. We will see the distinction reinforced in Acts chapter 5, verse 13, where it says, And not one of those others dared to join with them, but the people exalted them. Those others referring to the same party, the race of the high priests. Those others not qualifying to be Christians. Verse 24. And those hearing with one accord raised a voice to Yahweh, those of their own countrymen, right? Who they reported these things to. And they said, Master, you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all things in them, who by the mouth of our father David, your servant through the Holy Spirit said, Why do the nations rage? and the peoples practiced vanities. The kings of the earth made a stand, and the rulers gathered into one place against Yahweh and against his anointed. The Codex Beze in the majority text, and therefore the King James Version, want that phrase of our father in verse 24. The majority text also wants the phrase through the Holy Spirit, In verse 25. The Codex Beze has this phrase, but the wording of both verses in that manuscript is quite different than any of the others. In both instances, the text of the Christogonian New Testament follows the Codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, and Vaticanus. Why do the heathens rage? Or if the Greek word ethnos is read disparagingly, which it may well be, right? Why do the heathens rage? Yet the context of Psalm 2 intends the other Genesis 10 Adamic nations, even though they may already be heathens. In other words, mixing themselves with and or following the practices and idolatry of the non-Adamic races. It shall be elucidated later in our presentation of Acts that when groups of mixed nationalities are referenced, the word ethnos may be interpreted as people. Yet the Greek word laos, which also appears here in verse 25, is peoples in the plural, literally means people. And in Greek it is regularly the people, both in singular and plural, according to Liddell and Scott. Brenton, in his Septuagint translation, writes peoples in the plural 
of laos in the plural in some places. For instance, at Psalm 117.1. And translating this passage in its historical context, I found it fitting to do so here. These verses quote Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. While the second psalm is a profound messianic prophecy, in the primary context of the passage as it was written, David references either himself alone or the nation of Israel collectively with the phrase, his anointed, as they are the anointed people of Yahweh and he is the anointed king of Israel, anointed by Yahweh. It could refer to either depending on how the pronouns are understood in verse 3 of that psalm. It may be argued that either understanding is correct. The Christogenian New Testament recognizes the use of the Greek phrase ho Christos, where it often applies to the children of Israel as God's anointed, and that can be established in many other passages of Scripture, even though the King James Version and many other translations do not recognize such an application, which is sad. Here the apostles seem to be citing this psalm, both, what well, well, really is a double fulfillment, both in reference to themselves collectively in what they had just experienced, and in reference to Christ, whom they describe as having been anointed in verse 27 below, where it is said that these same people had previously gathered against him. The words of David in the psalm, it may be argued, have a perpetual fulfillment. The enemies of God do this over and over again. They gather themselves against Yahweh and his anointed by gathering themselves against the children of Israel. In this final day, they gather themselves against Yahweh and his anointed presently because they have gathered, Satan has gathered all the world's other races against the camp of the saints. Revelation chapter 20. That's what's going on right now. Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. So these words in this psalm have a perpetual fulfillment. until the final day of Yahweh's vengeance against his enemies, which the psalm also later suggests. Psalm 2, from verse 1. Why do the heathens rage? The word can alternately mean nations. And the people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Now that word there in that verse can, re, can refer to Yahweh and David and be rendered there and make sense. Or his anointed can mean the children of Israel collectively who ruled over the rest of the Adamic world in the time of David. And that too would be Will, cannot be called an improper interpretation. So really, the words can have a double application. 
because the apostles used them of themselves in reference to themselves and what happened to them, and of Christ in reference to Christ and what happened to him. The words can be interpreted either way, and both interpretations can be correct. Verse 4 of the psalm, the second psalm, He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. Yahweh shall have them in derision. Then he shall speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Zion can refer to David's place in Jerusalem, even though the the king's castle really wasn't on Mount Zion. Or it can refer to his people, Israel, which is more appropriate when spoken prophetically. I will declare the decree, Yahweh has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. In reference to David when he wrote the psalm, and as a prophetic reference to Christ, as the apostles also interpreted it. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Messianic prophecy. Acts 4, verse 27. For in truth they gathered in this city against your holy servant Yahshua, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the nations and peoples of Israel. As we have just discussed in verse 25, the word peoples here also is from the plural form of laos, the phrase nations and peoples in this verse is not properly a Greek handiatus, which is a grammatical device designating that two nouns refer to a single entity, since nations is not accompanied by a definite article. It may be interpreted to mean the separate nations and the people of Israel, or it may be interpreted to mean that both entities are referring to the people of Israel. Luke 2.29, where Luke, where Luke established such an understanding that the children of Israel had grown into many nations by this time, as Paul also did in Romans chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Luke 2.29 the words of Simeon, awaiting the consolation of Israel. Now release your servant, Master, in peace according to your word, because mine eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in front of all the people, a light for the revelation of the nations and honor of your people Israel. And there, people and nations and honor all do refer to the children of Israel. Verse 28. To do as much as your hand and will preordained to happen. 
This is a profession that everything which became of Christ and his ministry was within the intentions of Yahweh and were pronounced before time in the prophets, which would include the Psalms of David and everything, every major aspect of the ministry of Christ was indeed prophesied in both David and by the prophets, Isaiah, Daniel, verse 29. And now these things, Prince, you must look upon their threats and give your servants to speak your word with all frankness. So upon all of these events, being arrested, facing death, being afraid of it anyway, being persecuted by the high priests and the other Sadducees. The apostles prayed that they would be able to spread the gospel all the more and that their ability to do so would be at the hand of God. Later, Paul prayed for the same thing in his epistles, such as in 2 Corinthians 3.12, where he said, therefore having such expectations, we use much openness or much frankness, or much free-spokenness, all interpretations of that same word, parasia. Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. For I know that this, for me, will result in preservation through your supplication and the additional fortune of the Spirit of Yahshua Christ, in accordance with my eager expectation and hope, seeing that in nothing shall I be ashamed but with all free spokenness, as always, even now Christ shall be exalted in my body, whether by my life or by death. And Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. Through all prayer and entreaty, worshiping, at all times in spirit, and for this very thing, being watchful with all persistence and entreaty on behalf of all the saints. And on behalf, on my behalf, in order that speech may be given to me in the opening of my mouth with free spokenness to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in them I may speak freely as it is necessary for me to speak. In both cases, Paul is under arrest in Rome and referring to his defense of his faith, which happened before Caesar, after which, of course, he was summarily executed. Paul was imprisoned at the time in which he wrote both epistles, Yet he still prayed for the ability to preach the gospel openly. Verse 30 of Acts chapter 4. By which extending your hand for healing and signs and wonders to happen through the name of your holy servant Yahshua. And upon their making supplication, the place in which they were gathered was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of Yahweh with frankness or free-spokenness. Expressing as much in their prayer, the apostles understood that the spread of the gospel, by necessity, had to be facilitated by the glory of God. That the spread of the gospel was successful in the face of such great opposition, 
Judea was just the beginning of the opposition. And in spite of the competition which it had from so many long-established and popular Greek and heathen philosophies is proof of its veracity. Additionally, that so many men and women were willing to die on behalf of it, which we have abundant records to prove in both pagan and Christian sources alike, is also sufficient proof that all of these things are true. Those who deny them deny a profound historical reality laid out long beforehand in the words of the prophets, and therefore they oppose themselves to all of the will and prescience of a God who was long ago proven beyond doubt both his being and his purpose. Verse 32. And the multitude of those believing were of one heart and soul, and no one reckoned any of his belongings to be his own, but everything was common to them. And with great power, the ambassadors delivered the testimony of the resurrection of Prince Joshua, and great favor was with them all. Indeed, neither was there any deficiency among them, for as many as were owners of farms or houses, selling them, brought the proceeds of the things sold, and set it by the foot of the ambassadors, or apostles, and they distributed to each just as any had need. Then Joseph, who was called Barnabas by the ambassadors, which is interpreted son of consolation, a Levite, a Cypriot by birth, or Cypriot, selling a farm belonging to him, brought the money and set it before the feet of the ambassadors. Now concerning Joseph, who was called Barnabas, the majority text, and therefore also the King James Version, has Joseph's instead. Our text follows the 4th century Papyrus, P.A., the 4th century Codices Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, and the Codices Alexandrinus and Beze in this instance. The phrase, son of consolation, as the King James also has it, may well be son of encouragement. The Greek word, paraklesis, which is also used of the spirit, of the Holy Spirit by Paul. He calls it the paraclesis, the comforter. Bears either meaning. Consolation, encouragement. Notice that Barnabas was a Cypriot by birth, but a Levite, which is a tribal distinction. Barnabas is notable for his later work and then for his disagreement with Paul of Tarsus. We have discussed Christian communion here at length recently while presenting Acts chapter 2. It is clear that these peoples were devoting their lives and everything they had to the cause of the gospel, and that they were doing so voluntarily. We will reserve further comment until next week when we discuss these things again in concert 
with the account of those events which open Acts chapter 5, where we will also discuss, Yahweh willing, Christian dedication and Christian commitment. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Yahweh willing, I will be here next week with Acts chapter 5. I will be here tomorrow night with Sword Brethren to present part 22, I think, of Against the Paul Bashers. Thank you for listening, and good night.